Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, everyone. It is episode 185. It is the 15th of September. Pretty big show coming up. We're going to be talking to Senator Matt Canavan over in Queensland. He's going to be talking to us about the heartbreaking and just uh, incredible story of Sarah Kasip trying to attend her father's funeral and being blocked by the Queensland government on health advice, yet at the same time, Tom Hanks and AFL can seem to do whatever as they please. And we're also going to be talking to Dominic Talamanidis, who is a restaurateur here in Victoria, down in Lawn to be specific. He's going to be talking to us about... Um, the Daniel Andrews so-called roadmap, how that's absolutely uh, not a, something that's going to help businesses get back to business and basically what he wants from the government, which is to safely reopen. So, Pete, anything else you're looking forward to in the show? Just that the roadmap is more a Melways than Google Maps. <laughs> no, uh, what I'm looking forward to, James. Do we want to start the show again? <laughs> Do we want that stricken from all records so that no person would ever be subjected to what I was just subjected to? I've been sitting on that all week. It um, needed more time in the oven. I'm looking forward to, James, an amazing idea that that a certain individual, I don't want to give it away, but a certain individual in America had about a debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump that is going to be fantastic to talk about. So that is what I'm looking forward to, to answer your original question before I inserted yeah. my Melway's gag. Good teaser. It's the number one trending topic on Twitter today, so I think people have cotton on to what you're talking about, but a good teaser nonetheless. Uh, but we should talk about... Because this was basically the whole last week of news was the story of Sarah Kasip, who lives in Canberra, and she wanted to attend her father's funeral in Queensland. And she was there, she was in the hotel quarantine, and she was still going to be in hotel quarantine for the funeral. She applied for an exemption from the Queensland government to attend the funeral. The Queensland government somehow thought it was safe to say no, like they just did not want to do it. They said Canberra is still a hotspot. It has been over 60 days since Canberra has had a case of coronavirus. So if that is your definition of a hotspot, so is literally every corner of the earth. And you are going to need to redefine that hotspot definition if you're ever going to think about reopening. And I don't know, Pete, there's a lot to talk about with this one. Uh, I'm just going to start off with a bit of PR advice. I've I've got a lot of PR advice that I'm going to hand out over this show. I think there's a lot of public relations that are failing, and none more so than this because the Queensland government looked terrible doing this. But if your political fight of the week is against a woman trying to grieve her dead dad, Mm. the public are going to hate it, and they're going to hate you by extension. Yeah, that's probably true. And I feel like the source of this whole thing is, you know, like the election and, and Palaszczuk is trying to win the election. So she's like, we're being tough on borders and all the other states are bullying us, but I won't I won't back down. But yeah, obviously a bit of a PR hit for them. And they're going to keep coming because unfortunately these tragic situations are just going to keep occurring. There's a guy called Mark Keynes who is uh, terminally ill and he's, I think, written to the to Palaszczuk saying that only one of his four children could cross the border. Yet, as you mentioned at the same time, you know the AFL is having their big grand final up there and um, Tom Hanks is allowed to go up there. So, yes, it is a PR hit for them. And, um, yeah, it's just uh, once another example of two Australians. If you're rich and got money and high profile, you, you get uh, special privileges. And if you're just an ordinary person, then you don't. What do you think, James? I should point out there's a GoFundMe that's gone pretty viral and I think Scott Morrison's also contributed to it to make sure that family of four can be reunited before um, you know the father passes. But it's incredibly right and we're going to get into all this with Matt Canavan who's got a lot to say about this issue as you'd imagine. But part of the 
bizarreness to me was that Jeanette Young, who's a Queensland's chief health officer, got out in front of the press the next day after this outpour of um, hatred at the idea of this Queensland government saying it. I mean, one, Palaget just saying, look, I'm not going to own this. Jeanette Young, get out there, tell them it was your idea, which is politicking 101 at its finest. But then Jeanette Young saying, well, I support Hanks being in here because of the... Uh, the the economic benefits that filming comes to Queensland and I support the AFL coming here because of the economic benefits, but she's the chief health officer. Now, we talk yeah. about how much power the chief health officers are having through coronavirus and how they seem to be sitting above the Premier, but there's got to be no more obvious example than the chief health officer now dictating Queensland's economic policy. Yeah, and I don't buy that for a second. Like Clearly, the, the, the Premier is making decisions about that. We've seen this particularly in Victoria, but all around Australia and all around the world, the moral abrogation on the part of politicians handing over these decisions to health experts we're saying, I'm not making any decisions. I'm just following the, the advice of the health experts. This pandemic, no matter what decision you're making, requires you know excruciating moral trade-offs. And you like you could pretend that you're not making them, but you are making them. And 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 everyone can see that. You know this idea about we're going to let the AFL in, but not let this woman in to see her, her father's funeral. That's a moral trade-off. To pretend to pretend that there's some kind of health data that you can use to make that decision. Is, is fake and, and the idea, you know, we're putting the health of our children or the well-being of our children behind the well-being of our adults. That's pretty unusual for a society to do that. Usually it's the other way around. Um, and that trade-off is being made. To pretend that you're just following the health advice is, is, you know, as we talk about, one of the problems with this rule by expert thing is that they can give you data and advice and that's important, but they can't make those moral trade-offs for you. Yet we see politicians trying to hide behind them all the time. Um James, I would also like to say, you know, in terms of Scott Morrison getting involved in this, he's also trying to, you know, do a PR campaign, show how big hearted he is and say, look, you should let this person in. I would point out, as we talked to Matt Canavan a little bit about, uh, it's still not possible to leave Australia for a lot of people. Like, I think 60,000 people out of 80,000 people apply to leave Australia and, and they're not allowed to leave. And I just can't understand what the health risk to Australians is of people actually leaving the country. Um so, you know, it's, well, whilst I agree with what he's doing in this instance, I'd also point out that why isn't he allowing that to happen as well? Yeah, and then this issue is simply not going to go away, not because, um, I mean, we've already had people that were blocked for funerals. Sarah Kasem's story seems to be the one that's garnered the most public attention, but there will be f- future stories. You brought up the GoFundMe that's already happening. And then sometimes one thing we talk about the AFL one thing that's going to happen over this next week is that an AFL player, Steel Sidebottom, is going to rejoin the Collingwood Magpies over in Queensland, which is going to come straight on the heels of Sarah Case of not being allowed to go to her father's funeral, which is going to look terrible. And added bonus to it, being Steel Sidebottom for people in Queensland that don't know, is an AFL player that's already broken the AFL's coronavirus restrictions, and he still gets to come back. <laughs> is now, that what- and again... Uh, the, the drunken night out, the, he was found basically near a beach. Uh, this is the AFL player that's coming back. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't let the AFL ha- come to Queensland and you shouldn't let the filming go, but I am saying it's got to be one rule for everyone. And look, I'm happy for Steel Sidebottom to j- rejoin the Pies, and I'm happy for Tom Hanks to come in and do filming, but Sarah Kasip has to go to her father's funeral, and that family of four should be reunited with their dad for the last time. 
Exactly right, exactly right. And there is one final point I'd like to make on this, and that is this very cynical attempt from the Queensland Premier to claim that she's been bullied by the Prime Minister. I'm sorry, if you are a big, powerful politician in charge of a whole state and another big, powerful politician disagrees with you, that is not bullying. And, and I'll tell you what, if anyone's the victim in this, it's Sarah Kasip. Like, yeah. There's no person in the world that's going to think that Anastasia Palaszczuk is the biggest victim in all this. Exactly right. And you see politicians a lot sort of claim they're being bullied and it's just not true. And you to use it as a political tool. And, you know, there are people out there that are being bullied and, and harassed and stuff like that. And for you to use that cynically doesn't help them in the slightest. So that was one other thing I wanted to make about that. All right, it was an absolute singular joy to not lead off this week's show talking about <laughs> Victoria, but we do have to bring it up because last week we came out. So people around the world, uh, people around the country, and apparently yes, also people around the world know that Victoria is under a curfew. It was eight pm. It's now nine pm because coronavirus only comes out. Uh, you know, they must have had to sit down with the virus and decide when was the peak times that it's most effective. And the coronavirus said, "I'm going to come out at nine these days." But point is, we have a curfew. You can't leave your house after nine pm. Uh, or, fi- uh, or until 5am. And it was the idea that this is on health advice. And then Brett Sutton, who is our chief health officer, says, I didn't recommend the curfew. Yeah. So who did? Well, Daniel Andrews the next day says, it's there to make sure that the police can do their jobs effectively. And then the police say, we weren't consulted about the curfew either. So then it comes back to Daniel Andrews. Where did this curfew come from? He said it was a group decision. It's accountable to me, but we came up with it as a group. So, Pete, who the hell came up with this idea for a curfew? Well, Daniel Andrews came up with it, obviously. Uh, he said, I can't find it here. What did he say? He said, yeah, he said the next day that, you know, it was basically him. Um, he's <laughs> Actually, what he did was, what the, the thing that I enjoyed about his statement in response to this was that it was admitting that he'd been lying for months like it was the most natural thing in the world. So, he said... That's a decision I've made and went to and went on to say that the government was free to go beyond the advice it receives, which really means they're free to not follow any advice they receive. Um, and they, he said it like, it was like, of course I'm free to go beyond the medical advice, even though I've been justifying every single message for the whole, every single measure for the whole six months on the back of medical advice. So that was one of the ones out of the, 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 the Andrews playbook is just to, just to claim, just to act like lying is the natural, most natural thing in the world. The other point that I noticed from his press conference about this when he originally justified it, James, was that he 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 started just saying words that have been uh, approved by the Vic Labor propaganda unit that have just been market research to show that the punters like it. And he said, it's, ju- it's justified by science and data and doctors, like just throwing words around out there without actually meaning anything. But um, yeah, look, I think we've all started to realize that, look, like we just talked about, that the rule by experts is is an odd thing and people will be shocked to find out that actually politicians use it. Politicians stretch the truth and often they use politicians, to, uh, experts to, to do that. Well, there's some big things that are going to have to be decided now. I mean, the idea of a curfew is an inhibition on human rights. And I know Daniel Andrews says it's not about human rights, it's about human lives, which is a very reassuring thing for a politician to say, I don't care about human rights. But Tim Wilson, who is you know a Liberal MP here in Victoria, federally, been kicking up a big storm about the human rights challenge. We've had Michael Wiles, QC, is one of the state's top, attorney, uh, top uh, barristers or legal professionals, say that... Anyone, if it wasn't defined by health advice, then chances are that it's an illegal law and that anyone fined under curfew can sue the government. And you think about the mounting concepts of people suing the government for some of these coronavirus restrictions, there is a big 
uh, payday coming for people that have been the victim of some of the Victorian government's restrictions coming up in the next couple of years, you would think. Mm. And the thing is, it's still not going away. If it's not on health advice, if the police say they weren't consulted on it, there's, you would have thought, okay, well, dro- clearly just drop it the second you can because this is something that no one wants, it's something that mm. no one needs, and it's something that's deeply unpopular, but it's still going to be here till October. That's exactly right. When does it change to 9pm? Is that... That's soon, isn't it's it? It's now. It's now. You can, oh. We can now run around 8.38 p.m. Free as birds, as oh. long as it's for essential reasons. And the other... Actually, to pick that up, so when Daniel Andrews was asked about this, he had the point of going, well, why would you need to leave your house <laughs> after 8 p.m.? If there's only four essential reasons for travel, if supermarkets are closed, and he says, okay, well, maybe some people want to go at a run at 9 p.m., well, that's not possible. And th- But this idea that Daniel Andrews gets to decide what individual people can do, I'm sure there is a bunch of people that work from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. who would love the idea of 9.30 p.m. getting some exercise once you've wound down from work, but they can't hmm. do it. But Daniel Andrews says, oh, why would you need to? Yeah, and, and it's like, well, for a start, my housemate works literally exactly those hours, and he works at a hospital dealing with COVID, so like people facing the pandemic probably would like a little bit longer. Uh, I think Daniel Andrews knows more about his personal routine than he does. So <laughs> I'm... Let's talk about Harry's personal routine. No. And um, and the other thing is, it's like Daniel Andrews, that is not how it works. It doesn't quite work like, well, you've got to justify a reason to be able to utilize your freedoms. It's like, no, we you have to justify reasons for taking our freedoms away. So um, yeah, just, just completely the wrong way around. Um, and... Look, I mean, we've been saying for weeks the curfew thing had no medical background and now we know for a fact so it's like what else doesn't actually have any medical medical background? Yeah, how many other captain's calls have there been? And then the, the final point I want to bring up about this. So the, Dan Andrews is standing by the curfew on the idea that it does make police jobs easier and it makes them uh, more effective. Now I thought... For the last eight months, the world has been talking about defunding the police or at the very least demilitarizing them. I thought that was the number one issue. We had people marching in the streets of Melbourne uh, for less police brutality in America. And I'm not saying they shouldn't have been, but I am saying where the hell are you when if, if you're so against the idea of police brutality and police tactics and the government just protecting the police against the rights of ordinary people... You're under a curfew just to make police jobs easier. You would have thought there would have been a bit more outrage from the Greens about this. Oh, there's just this huge... It's just it's one of the most puzzling aspects about all of this is the inconsistency of people who... You know, I mean, we talked about Julian Burnside last week. His whole career is made out of... Well, he's been a lawyer, but he's, a large part of his career has been talking about human rights. His media profile. Yeah, his media profile. And then for this, he's like, nah, it's, it's cool. It's cool. And, then, and, you know, people, thousands of we're, people... We're in, in a war. Yeah, <laughs> uh, thousands of people protesting in the street, and then not a not a mention of uh, you know the kind of the, the kind of liberties our police are taking at the moment. Now, do you want me to start talking about police brutality in Melbourne in the last couple of days, James? Is that uh, well, once a strong word because it's such a sad topic, and I don't enjoy talking about it, but it does yeah. quite lead into what we're talking about right now. Yeah, exactly right. So. And interesting, obviously, uh, you probably would have seen, I think it was on Sunday night, uh, a man is in a juice coma in Melbourne after his head was stomped on by a police officer, uh, allegedly, as he was arrested on Sunday afternoon, afternoon uh, his lawyer says. Now, the police say upon arrival, the male allegedly became aggressive, so uh, once the police arrived at this intersection in Melbourne, uh, and damaged a police vehicle while attempting to avoid arrest. 
Uh, and then, of course, the vision, which you'll be able to see on the internet, is um, firstly a police car rammed him to knock him off his feet. Um, and then... Went, yeah, not rammed his car, rammed him. Rammed him. Like, ran him over. Yeah. So, uh, and then whilst he was on the ground being held down by police, uh, there was video of police allegedly stomping on his head. Now, the police... Um, the police minister, Lisa Neville, said... She said, uh, so the thing is going to be before the professional standards, fair enough, but she said there were difficult circumstances and the man had committed quite a violent offence, which is a point disputed by his lawyer, but even if it's true, it's like, not sure that's relevant. And then she said, but there are some concerning aspects of the arrest, particularly at the end of that arrest, she said. So this is, we're worried about in this state about the nexus between the police and the government, how they're in cahoots how the police go after the government's political enemies, but not so much the government's political allies. And here is the police minister describing someone's head, allegedly, getting stomped on as concerning, but whatever this guy did beforehand as violent. So I don't know what this guy did beforehand, and it hasn't come out exactly what he's done beforehand, but if it's less than stomping on someone's head when they're lying on the ground being held down by other people, then that means she thinks she's effectively described that action as concerning, and what he's done as violent. So that must mean it's worse than that because if it's not, she's clearly trying to manipulate the situation, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, Does that I make th- sense? I think so. Um, it was, it was sense-adjacent. Uh, <laughs> it was like around the sense. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, my thought would be, and look, obviously I'm not a police officer, but my thought would be once a guy's on the ground, it's over. You've won. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Any, I, I- if, if if it's still there to the point that stomping on his head is necessary, then something's gone terribly awry. But you would have thought it would have been over by that point. Exactly right. And I get that not all of everything has come out about this incident at the moment. We're talking about this in very early terms. Uh, and obviously, it's hard being police officers and all that. And I'm not saying that they're all like this or anything like that. I'm just pointing out what may be a bit of an inconsistency here from the police minister, which would add to this sense that Victorians have that the police aren't the impartial... The police and the government aren't the separate impartial bodies that they're meant to be in a democracy. And I would add that I am nudging the uh, defund the police movement here in Victoria with a stick and just whispering, come on, do something to myself. But we'll move on to another story because last week, I mean, if you read, hey, what did I miss... Sorry, if you're an IPA member and you get the, hey, what did I miss email, which I send out every Thursday, uh, you would have seen me say that last week was the most impactful week that the IPA's had in my eight years of being here, which is absolutely true. We've been absolutely everywhere. But the one thing I want to talk about, mainly, it's all on our website. You should go check out all the research we've done. But the one thing that really jumped out at me was Australia's case-shaped recession. Now, this is something that Kian Hussey, friend of the show, has put together, which is basically the idea that Australia is experiencing coronavirus in two different ways. So we've got the public sector and the private sector. And you want to talk about the hits? It has basically only been taken by the private sector. So according to the latest data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, which Kian Hussey looked at, public sector jobs have increased by 1.9% since the 14th of March compared to a 5.4% decrease in the private sector. Translates to about 15,200 jobs added in the public sector and 650,000 jobs lost in the private sector. So, uh, and then throwing it in there, in the June quarter, private sector wages declined by $5.9 billion around Australia, while public sector wages increased by $768 million. But Pete, we're all in this together. That's right. We're all in this together. So, uh, as, yeah, as we mentioned last week, the K-shaped recession, it's not just private versus public. It's also small business versus big business and young people versus older people, not versus, but um, who are experiencing... Contrasted the, against. 
contrasted against is how I'd put yeah. it, who are experiencing the, the, the impacts more harshly. Big business. So between 14th of March and 22nd of August, 377,000 small business employees lost their job compared to 30,000 big business employees. And uh, younger Australians have incurred 34, 35% of the net job losses, even though they account for 15% of the workforce uh, and they will need to pay back the forecast. $1 trillion in debt that will be accumulated by the federal government alone over the next three years. So it's private sector people, it's small business people and small business workers uh, and young people who are bearing the cost of this in case you didn't realise. Uh, and we are definitely not in this, all this, we are not in this together and there are two Australias. Yeah, I want to focus in on the public be private. And um, when we bring up these stats, we're not just saying, um, hey, we want the public service to suffer just as much as the rest of us. Obviously, I don't want anyone to be suffering through this. But what I am saying is that a lot of these decisions are being made by bureaucrats or people in the public sector who aren't feeling the job losses are the same as uh, other Australians. And when we talk about roadmaps and we talk about opening up and how many people can sit at a cafe, you would have thought that private businesses would have been a bit more involved in the talks. You get so many stories about the government policy being decided and then briefed to business groups rather than them being an integral part of the decision-making process. But you would want someone with a bit more skin in the game being in these rooms making these decisions than just hearing about it afterwards. Oh, yeah, it's exactly right. And I think that... Um I think that there's this view, I guess, that business and the economy and the market is kind of a necessary evil or just a means to an end to provide a large amount of economic well-being, which we have in Australia. But it's not just that. It's also a person's dreams and what they've worked on for their lifetime and their sense of dignity and self-worth and things like that. And obviously, people would say, well, you know, we've got to look after the the virus. Um, and that's obviously true. But... Um, but there's, there's the lack. There's been a yeah a loss of proportion. The idea that we can just just end businesses and 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 that's just an economic thing that we'll get over really quickly is yeah misguided. All right, last thing we want to talk about. So New South Wales had quite the week last week. But the closest that the coalition has come to falling apart in at least decades over, um, you know, what is a serious issue, but it gets played off funny. So the idea is. The New South Wales National Party have been up in arms over these land management laws, which basically amount to what is and what isn't where koalas live and what farmers can and can't do with their properties if the government decides that's where koalas live. There's a lot of instances of farms being that have no koalas anywhere near there or towns where there's no koala sightings since the 19th century that have to have these extra council rules placed on them because of these laws. But it does... Eventually, and so there's an impasse between the uh, the Liberal Party and the National Party over this, and Barilaro presses the nuclear code button and threatens to withdraw the Nationals from the coalition and sit on the crossbench. Gladys Berejiklian meets him head on. Then uh, the Nationals don't end up leaving, so Gladys seems to get her way. There's probably something more about the issue, and maybe there'll be some concessions just to make sure it doesn't happen again, but it was a nuclear launch button code that Barilaro slammed his fist on last week. That's right, and it does seem like, you know, at first glance, to be honest, I was like, this is a funny story. Why are we doing it at the top? And and James was like, no, this is a serious story because even though it is quite funny to think that, like, the whole of the coalition would fall apart over koalas, there is an issue around how farmers can use their land and there is an issue around laws that are introduced that are emotional 
responses to environmental issues where no balance is, is found between the environment and, and, and human activity. And these laws were brought in in March this year, I believe, March this year. Mm. You know, so around the time when heaps of koalas had been dying in the bushfires, it was an emotional response. And we know that uh, since the year 2000, that the, the uh, number of regulations on the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act 1999 has increased by 445%. And we don't, you know, people in the cities have massive electoral power. We don't realise what goes on in the bush. People make up, have this thought bubble, we've got to protect this, we've got to do that, and it has a huge impact on people's lives. So whilst this is quite funny to think about the gnats leaving because of koalas, environmental regulation being out of balance is a huge issue in this country. I bring up another point here. So I reckon, look, I'm handing out PR advice. I handed it out to the Queensland government before. Here's mine for Barilaro. Look, only ever discuss this as a land rights issue. This cannot be discussed as a koala killing issue. Every yeah. like You've never mentioned the word koalas. Just say land rights, land rights, land rights. Because the other people outside of these communities, we just heard koalas need to go. <laughs> but Not the way to endear people. But in Barilaro's... Def- Sorry, you, are you finished? I, I would just say, Barilaro, stick to land rights, land rights, land rights. And if one journalist just says, does this mean more koalas dead? You just got to go, hmm? I'm taking the medical advice. Um, no, with the, with the... But we're talking about it. It got cut through. You know, like, would we be talking about this if there was just some quibble about, you know... And maybe we would because the IPA stands up for farmers. But would the Guardian and all these other people be talking about it? Probably not. So I'm, I'm, I'm not saying you should hit the nuclear codes over it. I'm just saying you've got to manage the branding issue. It's got to be a land rights issue. And one is, one thing I've always wanted to be able to mention on this podcast, which it's a, it's a shame I haven't been able to mention up until now, is that up until, it, very, very recently, a couple of years ago, in areas around Adelaide, in the hills around Adelaide, koalas were on birth control because there were so many koalas. All right. Can someone add, Saul, can you add that to the official minutes? I just wanted to... Just write that down. We'll refer back to it later. All right. The, the idea of koalas on birth control always kind of tickled me. Heroes and villains time. This is the grunt... We'll start with heroes, the grunt, the pig, freedom, snort. This is for people that have stood up for freedom and justice around the world this week. Pete, who is your hero? So I've got really stiff hamstrings today. So that's why that I was hero? Just said No. Well, I mean, I am. My hamstrings are a hero, but... My hero, no, okay, this is a serious hero, so enough gags. Uh, report in the LA Times over the weekend about teachers in Hong Kong starting to lose their jobs if they don't support the CCP enough. It featured this story of a, uh, of a graphics design teacher who had drawn um, cartoons that were anti-Chinese Communist Party and supporting the people protesting for democracy. And he got the sack. Obviously, uh, there's lots of people in Hong Kong, pro-democracy activists, politicians, journalists, and others who are facing enormous pressure to stop talking about what's going on. We obviously don't talk enough about Hong Kong as much as we should uh, because of what's been going on here in Victoria and here in Australia. Um, And we would have been talking about a lot more had the pandemic not occurred. But we should mention the fact, you know, and really the last six months, we've gone through what, like 0.1% of what the people in Hong Kong are going through in terms of having their rights taken away. Like there's a massive difference between the Chinese Communist Party taking your rights and just a useful idiot of the Chinese Communist Party taking your rights for a short amount of time. But just seeing what that's been like, you know, it's you can see what what it must feel like to just see your country taken by, you know, one of the most big, powerful, evil regimes you can imagine. So, yeah. Just for all the people fighting in Hong Kong, God bless you and uh, you're my hero this week. I reckon I should have gone first because it's a tough transition from yours to mine because mine is far more lighthearted. <laughs> What's yours? But mine is, so oh, look, I'm yeah. not going to take a side in this 
liberals versus nats over koala policy in New South Wales. Not taking a side, but I just want to point this. Gladys Berejiklian lived a life goal of mine. Now, when her V Barilaro was at its absolute zenith, there's a few rumors about what happened here, but the one that seems to be most popular is that Barilaro is sitting down with some senior nationals. Gladys Berejiklian walks in, says, I've never been so disgusted in my three plus years of working with you. You should withdraw your threat or I want your resignation on my desk at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning and then leaves. And then next day, as, as it stands now, got her way. Walking into a room... Telling someone three sentences and leaving and then getting your way is an absolute life goal. And I'm glad that she got to live that. And I just hope that one day I'll have the same uh, ability. The same gumption as Berejiklian. Well, right. you know, good on you, James. You should, you should aim for that. Oh, okay, villains, right. Yeah, so Extinction Rebellion, fake nudie, right? As Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. Extinction Rebellion, back in October, a long time ago now, did a fake nudie run to save the planet because it was a fake nudie run and not a proper nudie run. We call anyone who's standing against freedom for the week the Extinction Rebellion fake nudie run villain of the week. James, who is your villain? So last week was RUOK Day, and obviously with coronavirus restrictions and lockdowns coming in across Australia, it's a pretty important uh, RUOK Day as far as they go. And there's a whole lot of people suffering from uh, mental stress at the moment. Their lives are being taken, livelihoods are being taken away. And Deputy Chief Medical Officer Nick Coatsworth, who basically the face of the federal government's response, pretty handsome guy, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but anyway, people know who he is. He did a blunder so he's talking about some he's talking about are you okay day he's talking about mental health responses to it and here's what he said to people set yourself achieve especially people here in victoria set yourself achievable goals one of the simplest things you can do in the morning and this was said to me once at a leadership seminar by someone who is a very good leader is make your bed what does he recommend we do for the remaining 23 hours of <laughs> 23 hours 45 minutes of that day and then the next eight weeks of lockdown afterwards yeah, and then the next 10 years because you lost your job. Um, yeah, that's that's amazing. And like, just, you know, we don't, we don't mind when Jordan Peterson says it because we don't have to pay for the advice. And he hasn't put Because that was it. step one <laughs> with Jordan Peterson. And then he said, go and do a million things like reconnect with your family that we can't even visit here <laughs> in Victoria. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't... Well, Honestly, I didn't... Marie Antoinette has had 200 years of infamy <laughs> for less than that. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So I... And yeah, I just didn't want people to think we we're being inconsistent on the bed making thing, you know, like it's important that people know that we're being consistent. Um, no, that was that was terrible. Has he got much blowback for that? You'd hope. I, I mean, it was lampoon for a good part of the week, but, you know, I don't think 200 years from now it's going to be the same let them eat cake moment, which it should be. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to you in 200 years. So my villain this week is the South Australian government, which as far as I can see, you just get in the bin. Get in the bin, South Australian government. We don't need this right now. South Australia has become the first Australian state to introduce laws banning some single-use plastics, including cutlery, straws, and stirrers. The rule comes in in early 2021, but not a set date. They haven't given a set date. They've just said early 2021. Not sure why. Now, obviously, if you want to solve plastic in the oceans, help countries like Vietnam, Indonesia, the Philippines, China become wealthy because when countries become wealthy they look after the environment better which is one of my favorite points in the world and those countries put a lot of plastic in the ocean because they're middle-income countries so they're growing creating more plastic but they haven't got the systems in place yet to stop the waste getting into the ocean uh and that's what you should be doing south australia not punishing small business that are already absolutely copying it because of coronavirus now that was number one the second one 
from the South Australian government this week is that the government in South Australia received a formal approach from PETA, which is People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And not you. And not you, for a memorial for 5,000 chickens. Because you're PETA. Ah, oh, now I get it. Yeah, because you, you supported me, which I appreciated, but you didn't internalise what I'd said. <laughs> I didn't, yeah, that's up there with my Melways gag. Anyway, five thousand chickens. In on August twenty four, there was a truck fire on the southeastern freeway in South Australia, which took fire crews thirty minutes to contain. But unfortunately, five thousand chickens were lost. Uh, I would point out they were going to the abattoir anyway, so let's not you know get too carried away. But the Peter has said we've got a memorial and it's got to say in memory of the chickens who suffered and died at this spot, try vegan. Now, what has this got to do with the South Australian government, you might be asking, James, is that they have not ruled it out. They've just said they're considering it. So, and I get that's not the same as saying they're going to do it, but you would have thought that wouldn't take much consideration. It would have been, look, we're not going to put up a Peter advertisement memorial for chickens that were going to die anyway. So for those two things, South Australian government, you're my villain this week. Yeah, very solemn to put an ad for your cause on a memorial. Mm. I know like we've been sitting here going, I wish politicians would do one other thing than read out daily case numbers each morning, mm. but maybe not those two things. Not so, all right, let's now go to our interviews with Senator Matt Canavan and Dominic Telemanidis. Okay, we now welcome back onto the show a friend of the program, Senator Matt Canavan, Senator from Queensland. Welcome back. Great to be here. Uh, thanks for having me on again, James. Brilliant. So, Matt, the nation, well, the state of Queensland, obviously, and the nation as a whole was pretty heartbroken by the story of Sarah Kasip last week. Now, what did you make of the decision to ban her from her father's funeral? I was pretty gobsmacked by it, I must say. Uh, look, we've we've gotten used to uh, the, the Queensland government trying to, to show they're acting tough here on, on the borders up here. Uh, but this was such a open and shut case uh, of someone that, that should be given should be given some kind of compassionate exemption, um, you know she uh, she had only she'd been a Queenslander, to, you know she'd only moved out Canberra in February last year, uh, February this year, sorry, and uh, uh, and and she'd come from a jurisdiction where they haven't had a case for two months. Um, so look, I mean, I, I, people sort of understood. Okay, we've got these tough restrictions, so you're always going to get cases like this. But as soon as it became open and public, and as soon as you know people like the prime minister called the premier, we all thought, oh well, they'll grant an exemption. They had a you know half a day or so to do that uh, to get it to the funeral, and then and then they didn't do it. I, I it's it's sort of I don't know if they didn't realise what their reaction would be, or they've just decided that no, the whole election campaign is going to be about borders, and they don't want anyone to think about what happened in Queensland before the last five months. So if they can create controversy. Uh, great. We'll keep everyone's attention on the coronavirus and not the mismanagement of this state in the last few years. Now, what did you make of sort of the different treatment between um, the, the thing that sort of made it a big deal for so many people, and including down here, was that like the AFL have been made accommodated for people like Tom Hanks have been accommodated for. Um, yet, someone who's ordinary and not bringing in heaps of money to the state is a huge health risk. Do you think that's a bit hypocritical and double standard type thing? Yeah, well, as I was saying last week, I, you know, it's, it was it was as if the government had had put in place a double standards act. You know, there were so many, uh, so many uh, uh, contrasts. Uh, it was like it was part of their policy to come up with what's the biggest contrast they could they could create. Uh, uh, and and look, uh, you know, everything is being done through the election here right now. The government's trying to, you know, the only thing they're really focused on is in forty eight days' time they've got an election. 
and they tried to do everything through that. So they thought last week they had this great coup that they'd got the AFL grand final. Uh, um, the grand finals, I'm sure you all know in Victoria, it's a week before uh, the, the Queensland election here, a week before Halloween when the election is on. And so this was going to be a great sort of last week for the government. Uh, I don't know if they realised, though, I don't know if they watch much footy because I don't know if they realised, you know, how football players behave. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't really bank on this. That, and, and, you know, like I, I love my footy, right? And I love footy players because they're just average blokes and they get into trouble. But, you know, a, a day after they made this announcement, there were two AFL football players caught brawling outside a strip club on the Gold Coast. I mean, the timing just you couldn't get worse for the, for the government here. But it just exposed all of these double standards. And I, I couldn't quite work out, why does the AFL need 400 officials anyway? Is this, is this a public service? Is this another version of the Victorian government down there? Why, why have they got 400 people up here, apparently? They've had to bring up from Melbourne. Why do they need 400 people to run football? I don't... <laughs> what the hell has happened there? Well, and they've uh, all decided the government's... to leave Melbourne and come up here to stay in a resort. So that hasn't gone down well, of course. Yeah, I just think uh, everyone just wants to copy what state government's been doing and just yeah. if you can build your own swamp and if you can build your own sort of cabal of yes men, then uh, companies just run smoother. Now, a third part of this uh, whole fiasco that I found so extraordinary was that Jeanette Young gets up there, this Queensland Chief Health Officer. She gets up and she defends the decision to ban her from the funeral. Uh, and then the defends the decision to also grant exemptions for the AFL, grant exemptions for Tom Hanks, by saying that the latter two bring in money to the state. Now, be that as it may, I don't. I didn't realise that was in the purview of the chief health officer. Like, yeah. I thought they were there for the health. I didn't know they were there to advise on economic policy. Look, you've hit the nail on the head there. Look, I, I as 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 infuriating as I've find, found some of the public health. Uh, officials in the last few months, I am starting to feel a little sorry for Dr. Young because she has been absolutely thrown under a bus here. In fact, uh, you know, I don't think there's a bus in Queensland she hasn't been thrown over in the last few, thrown under, sorry, in the last few months. Uh, uh, What happened there was when this was at the height of the dispute about the exempt, or the lack of an exemption provided to that young girl, Sarah, to see go to her dad's funeral. The Premier didn't go out and face the press. She sent Dr. Young out, right? And so she's having to answer all these questions from the press about how do you balance up one case against another. They're political questions. And I think she just got herself into a bit of a trap because I'm absolutely sure that there was no health advice saying it was okay to let 400 officials in from Melbourne. Uh, uh, That was no risk. Uh, uh, I'm absolutely sure that there was a political decision that was ultimately... Grand final, so let's 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 go easy on these guys. We want the movie to be produced on the Gold Coast, so let's go easy on Tom Hanks. That wouldn't have been Dr. Young's decision, and so she shouldn't have been out there having to defend it. The Premier should have been out there having to defend it. That's what we're paid for. I get you got to make all the decisions, and I'm not against an exemption per se for AFL officials or, or Tom Hanks. But don't get me wrong. I think I want the economy to keep going, right? I, you know, I don't want to. I don't. But what, what, is, what infuriates me is that if there's an exemption here for these sort of activities, why can't there be compassion exemptions for things that are just as important as uh, someone going to a funeral when they're coming from a, an area where there's no COVID cases? That's an interesting point you make about Jeanette Young. I remember right at the start, she said, she sort of straight up said that there was no medical evidence that, you know, not sending kids to school um, stopped COVID. So sending kids to school would increase infections. She said it, she was just doing that to make a point. And I, she just has this impression of like she's mm. a bureaucrat. She hasn't got like this experience of 
what is happening now and um, she's kind of too honest. Like she just sort of straight up said, oh, well, that's because they're bringing more money into the state. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but what Palaszczuk did is what Dan Andrews has been doing and lots of premiers around Australia have been doing and that is saying, I'm following health advice when they're making these admittedly excruciating moral trade-offs that have nothing to do with the health advice. Like the health advice is, this is the advice, now you decide what we're going to do. And they're just saying they're following the experts when really they're not. Is, is that, have you found, do you agree with that? Have you found oh, absolutely. That uh, you know, it's, it's such a cover, right? And uh, I think it's extremely unfortunate. It's not, this is not, the, this is not a, a, a lonesome example here. We get very similar situations where politicians say they're following the science. Yeah, right, they're following the science. Yeah. But science can never tell you the value judgments you've got to make in politics against one thing or another. So take something like the Murray Daly, where, yes, the science says, okay, if you take a certain amount of water, it's going to have this impact on fishes, it's going to have this impact on frogs, it's going to have this impact on jobs. Um, the science doesn't tell you which one of those to choose. It gives you information about the costs and benefits of different decisions, but ultimately it's up to politicians and the democratic process to make those value judgments. And we face the same things here in this pandemic. Public health advice, its own, can't do that. I thought it reached its apogee last week when uh, Dan Andrews blamed it all on a supercomputer. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. even the health official, you know. It wasn't even a human being. It was... Uh, you know, uh, some some uh, Victorian uh, supercomputer who had made all the decisions. We just chucked it all in and made all the decisions. And I was very intrigued with this because I'm kind of a nerd. So I downloaded all the software and ran the model on my trusty Dell XPS 15. Uh, I didn't realise I had a supercomputer at home. <laughs> Apparently I do. <laughs> like, it's a model, right? It's not that impressive. People get a bit taken away with it. Um, but it doesn't. it should not absolve governments from making the tough decisions and explaining those clearly to people when they do have to make them. Uh, yeah, I think you're uh, 36 hours out of date for Dan Andrews' thing because he's abandoned the su- supercomputer talks. He now <laughs> says that data is bigger than modelling. Now that people right. are starting to criticise modelling. Sorry. I don't watch we- his hour and a half press conferences every day. <laughs> I, I, I feel the need to and I don't know why. I've, st- I've stopped doing it on weekends. That's my time. But, um <laughs> The other thing is, like you say, that there's other instances of this. I think there's going to be specific instances again of people being denied access. I mean, we've already got the GoFundMe that's being raised for a family of four to visit their dying father. I just think this is going to be an issue that comes back again and again of people wanting to come to Queensland and you want to extend it over to Western Australia and some of the other states with hard borders of people seeking compassionate grounds that are really going to... Uh, open up people's hearts. I mean, uh, Sarah Kasip is a tragedy, but it's also yep. not the first person that's been... Uh, pushed back. So, what would you say to uh, Palaszczuk and Jeanette Young about what should happen next time? Well, well, paradoxically, actually, despite the, some of the criticism we're making of relying too much on public health advice, I, I think actually things would be a lot simpler if we went back to look at the actual public health situation. So, I, I think the hotspots model—that's what we've got to move to, right? If Queensland had a hotspots model, a proper hotspots model in place. This case with Sarah uh, and her dad's funeral would not have arisen because she, Canberra's clearly not a hotspot right now. So if instead, what the Palaszczuk government have done is taken this blunt approach, said the whole whole of New South Wales has COVID and, it, and none of you can come in. Uh, and likewise in WA, they've gone further and they're still blacklisting the NT in South Australia. Uh, it's ridiculous. But if we had a if we had a proper approach based on where cases are, you wouldn't have the same issues. Because let's say Sarah had been from Melbourne last week. Right, and, and she had to go to her dad's funeral. There would not have been the same outrage because people understand that if you're coming from an area where there's rampant community transmission, look, it's tr- absolutely tragic and terrible, but we're not allowing people to come from overseas and come to funerals right now either, right, at last minute's notice. 
and it's a tough decisions we've got to make at this time. But what's happened is because elections are coming in WA and Queensland, uh, the, the issue has become one of borders, of state borders, not public health outbreaks. And that's the core problem here, which is creating a, uh, a controversy uh, that cannot be sustained under the public pressure that comes when you have a clear human interest like we had last week. So, Matt, onto the topic of borders. What do you think uh, of the border closures? Should um, states open their borders to other states? Should places like Western Australia and Queensland be more open? Well, as I said, I think we should go to that hotspot model. Look, I, I'm a big defender of states' rights, so I do get worried here during this pandemic. There's been a lot of calls, including some good mates of mine, saying we should just abolish the states and, <laughs> and let the Commonwealth run it. Well, yeah, look, I mean, as I said, we, we've closed our borders to the world, right, Australia. It's, it's illegal to leave this country right now. I think that's something we've got to ease up on soon. Uh, I, I think we should have eased up on it already. Uh, I'm all for the quarantining when you come home, but I don't see the need to make it illegal to leave the country. So we always got to be careful that once you make bigger jurisdictions, you potentially any bad decisions are being made, uh, get made for all, not just for a subset. Um, and so, you know, what if Dan Andrews was prime minister of the country right now? Right? Uh, <laughs> that, that, you know, well, don't joke. He before all this, he was quite popular, wasn't he? So it could have been the case if there'd been Dan Andrews there, not Bill Shorten, maybe it would have been a different election result last what, last year. So, you know, like I, I'm really worried about that. I do support states having the rights to to control travel, but I'd like to see a lot more sensible application of those given the modern world. We don't just have to rely on arbitrary borders drawn in the 19th century. Surely we can come up with something more sophisticated. Yeah, you brought up the uh, national borders as well, which is something we wanted to ask you about. And you said you wanted that eased up as well because, um, I don't know, like speaking of inconsistencies, there were there was the case of the woman who wasn't allowed to go to her daughter's funeral, but Shane Warne was allowed to go and commentate cricket. So I don't exactly know how the grounds were different on that. Would you move to a hotspot definition internationally of where people can travel or do you reckon people should be able to decide for themselves? Yeah, I think that's we've got to move to that because I'm not... Well, I don't think we should be putting all our eggs in the vaccine basket. Um, no, I really don't know about a vaccine, but I, I, I'm, I'm not... I'm not. I'm trying not to be, you know, over optimistic and, and ignore the fact that we could be a while away from a vaccine. So if that's the case, what are we going to do? Close off the country, the world? We're already seeing huge pressures that's creating in, say, uh, the education sector uh, for workers, for um, farming, uh, and um, yeah. So I'm sorry, this guys. My kids are just coming from school. <laughs> uh, I'm in quarantine here at home. I don't know if you want to keep the tape rolling. That's a bit right. of background noise, but. Uh, you know, and, and so I think we do need to move to both both the hotspots model. We also need to be get a little bit more innovative with this. Maybe we can move the quarantine down a bit, 14 days. I know some other countries are moving to lower numbers of, of that. Um, there's not many cases apparently that have come to light after a seven-day period. Very, very few. Uh, so, look, all this is about risk. We, we have to reduce risk, obviously, for people. But we can't just stay under the doona, as the Prime Minister has said. To be honest, I'm still shaken by the prospect of Dan Andrews being Prime Minister. What a nightmare scenario <laughs> that would be. I'm still shaken by that. But I think, um, you know, I think you're right. Like, if states, it's, we're better off with states having more power and more responsibilities than the central government having more power. You know, like if states had to collect their own revenue, for example, they might be less cavalier in spending um, in response to this and, and anything else. But anyway, moving, moving on. So the, um, so the borders policies that restrict movement from states or territories where there's not many um, uh, community transmission, not much transmitted, uh, community transmission at all, that's really moving to, from a submission um, suppression strategy to an elimination yeah. target. Yeah. 
Well, that's that's. I mean, it's still not. I don't know. I as I, I, I'm not watching an hour and a half long press conferences, so I'm not exactly sure where Dan Andrews has got. But we all remember it was all about flattening the curve, right? It's all about flattening the curve, and I supported that. I thought that made sense at the time. I mean, I, I remember someone made a really good analogy at the time back in March, where it's a bit like a bomb going off when you're out. You know, if you're on a mission or something. You know, if you're not that I've done that, but and you don't know what's happened, and you've got to pull back. You pull back and assess the situation and wait to see. So we should have pulled back in March. Um, what the problem now is, is that even though we've got a lot more information about the coronavirus, we haven't seemed to have adjusted the strategy. In fact, we seem to have now adopted a more restrictive economic lockdown type strategy in Victoria and potentially other places if an outbreak occurs. Yet everything we know about this coronavirus is less of a concern than it was back in March. I, I, I'm not in the camp saying this is, like the, this is just like a flu. I think it's, it's more serious than that. And, and we've seen terrible outcomes in countries where it has gotten out of control. And thank God it hasn't really done that here in this country. But, but you know, it's something we're going to have to manage and deal with. And a complete lockdown seems way, way over the top, given the threat that this disease um, um, uh, is for us. Yeah, I'm completely with you. I think the only metric that premiers seem to be thinking about is daily new case numbers, yeah. and not anything about hospitalisation or ventilators yeah. or percentage of ICU units taken up. And to me, that would be the more of the indicator of the seriousness of the threat. Last thing of question I've got for you is so. Uh, I mean, on this podcast, you've given us the terrible mental image of Daniel Andrews being Prime Minister, but... Uh, I think that risk is reduced. I think it's reduced. That's <laughs> I, Three weeks ago, I think he would have yeah. won in Mussolini-style numbers, but uh, maybe it's changed now. But it's it certainly... One thing I've noticed changing from this week to maybe, say, last month or two months before that is that the federal government and the coalition in general are more... Uh, cavalier and getting involved in what's happening at the States. I think there was like, leave them alone. It's always a matter for the States. I'm not going to get involved. And now there's Tim Wilson here in Victoria talking very strongly about the human rights challenge to, uh, sorry, the human rights threat the curfew's on. Matthias Corman gave it a pretty emotional interview to Sky News over the weekend talking about Sarah and her father's funeral. And now yourself, I'm just thinking, is, is, is this a deliberate ploy from the federal to start really pressuring states to ch change their restriction policies? And you, I don't know, are you enjoying talking a bit yeah, more about I, it? Yeah, I, I think we have to start doing that. I mean, you, I, I'm good mates with Matthias, so I don't mind me saying this. When, when Matthias gets emotional, you know it's serious. <laughs> you know, it's really serious. Um, uh, look, uh, uh, I think we have to get, get more serious with states that, that won't sign up to sensible policies. Uh, we can't keep, say, programs like JobKeeper going forever because that is basically bailing out the state governments that won't make uh, tough choices here. Uh, I think that has to be looked at now, given what happened in Victoria uh, so suddenly uh, and, and, you know, clear deficiencies from the state government, but it's happened, right? Like, so we can't cry over spilt milk. Uh, I fully support the extension of JobKeeper. Let's try and get through the next few months for you guys. Uh, but, you know, if, if, if economic... Um, malaise or economic downturns are continuing because of direct state government policies, not, you know, mistakes made, say hotel quarantine, but directly because lockdowns are occurring longer than they should be or borders are being closed longer than they should be. That's when I think we've got to look seriously at, well, hang on, why did they get to send a check to Canberra? If that's what you want to do, if you want to keep your borders shut, WA wants to keep its borders shut forever, well, you know, that's their policy decision and, and they can fund JobKeeper if they so choose. So we've got to look at that. I mean, as I said, I'm a big supporter of states' rights, but that comes with states' responsibility as well. Uh, you can't have one without the other. So if you want to have the right to do certain things, you've got to take responsibility for the consequences of the actions you take.
Send it back in, and then thanks for your time. No worries, guys. Okay, we now welcome on to the show someone I'm excited to talk to, Dominic Talamanidis, who runs the successful restaurant Ipsos down in Lawn. I've got on my notes here, one hatted. Don't quite know what that means. Maybe you'll be able to fill us in on that. But anyway, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, it actually is a, a tremendous pleasure. And um, just to join the ranks of uh, Matt Ridley, Brendan O'Neill, uh, Andrew Bogart, one of Australia's most successful ever basketballers, and now the names there, Dom Talamanidis as well. So wonderful. So, Dom, how's the last six months been for you, mate? We know that you run the, the restaurant down in Lord. What's it been like? Um, well, Pete, it's been, it's been a battle. I mean, um, more than anything, um, it's been a psychological battle for us. You, 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 you work really hard to establish a business that supports your family, pays your mortgage, does all of those things. And, um, and then through kind of no fault of your own, um, your business is just kind of stopped and then um you kind of you 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 enter this um this limbo of not knowing when when you're going to reopen and what um reopening looks like um we we were all really hopeful i think down here in particular of getting back open um this week and and we were all waiting for that announcement last sunday and um i can tell you the phone calls i had on sunday afternoon were people lost. I mean, we were kind of psychologically just defeated by it because we were all ready for an announcement to give us a glimmer of hope that um, things were going to start to return to normal. And um, and it was such a psychological kick in the gut. So um, yeah, it's been a battle, but, but hopefully we can kind of, um, I don't know, remain strong and, and get through it. Yeah, we've got a lot of listeners from interstate who might not quite get their head around the Daniel Andrews roadmap. I know enough Victorians are struggling to figure it out themselves, but the point is, so for restaurants like Dom's, uh, hospitality dining may not be permitted until 26 October, and then even then it's like outside dining, and the prospect of you having people sitting in your restaurant uh, where you can feed them, that might not be on the cards until November at the earliest. So these are the kind of restrictions that restaurateurs are facing and like the people that you were talking to, the people that were lost and feeling defeated, are any of them going to be able to keep their restaurants open that far in the future under these conditions? Well, the idea that we're going to be able to operate viably with outdoor seating only um, for the most part is just ludicrous. It's so out of touch. It just shows that this government hasn't... Um, had real discussions with people in our industry when they're coming up with these plans because for one i mean we're living in victoria this this idea may have worked in in the united states i think they they're kind of stealing the idea a little bit from new york but the new york summer is is a different beast to the victorian spring for one um and for two i mean what, what were the case numbers in new york that they kind of implemented this this kind of roadmap there compared to what we've got here in 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 victoria it's just it, it, it's madness so um a lot of people um as i was saying earlier we were all ready to to gear up and reopen and hopeful of indoor dining pretty much straight away um and now um this idea which none of us had even thought about of, of operating outdoors only um was kind of brought into the you know into the, the realms of discussion and it just seems so um, I don't know, disconnected with any um, reality. Um, for, for instance, in our, in our example, um, at, at the moment, we've had to move our tables so they're socially distanced outside. 
And we've got four tables, four tables undercover um, with heaters. So we can sit there anywhere from, let's say, 20 to 24 people. We can fit about six people on one of those benches. We would normally be doing, we'd normally be having about 200 covers through on a Saturday night alone. So, I mean, that's the economies of scale that are required to operate a, a restaurant. Um, mean that the minimum chefs I can really have is three or four in the kitchen, plus a dishwasher, plus a barman, plus some front of house staff. We can't operate those kind of numbers with 20 people coming into your business. So, so Dom, at the start of the show, James mentioned that you're one-headed, of course, a, a Michelin, that's a Michelin star, isn't it? Oh, you're very out of, that's, a, that's actually a, um, an Australian recognition. We don't have Michelin stars in Australia, unfortunately. Right, but it's still good. And, that, <laughs> and as you were talking about 200 people through the door every every Saturday night, so you're a, a successful established business, really well known, like a lot of people might have heard of your restaurant. As we were talking about before the show though, it's the people on the edge that are really stuffed up by this, isn't it? It's people that are just starting their business that might have been on the edge before this whole thing started. They're the ones that are really copying it. Is that, would Absolutely. that be fair? So I'll give you an example actually, and I hope he doesn't mind me using him, but my brother, he started a cafe earlier in November um, last year. Um, now, he might not mind, he might mind me saying this, but I'll say it anyway. He sold his house um, to finance the establishment of that business. He bought a, he bought a business. He fitted out the um, the freehold. He, you know, he signed a lease agreement with that with that person, and you know, real proverbial balls on the line stuff. And um, and he's just been so shafted by this lockdown. Um, now all of a sudden, you know, he, he's having really difficult conversations with his landlord about, um, you know, offsetting payments. Um, you know, a cafe with 20 people inside, if, if 20 of them or 15 of them are just having a coffee, I mean, it's not viable for these guys, um, any of these restrictions that have been imposed on him. And you really feel for them, um, obviously, because he's only started the business, um, you know, less than a year ago, um, he's... Casual staff aren't able to apply for JobKeeper. Um, he's only got a couple of um, full-time staff. And you think these guys have just been really kicked in the guts. Um, businesses like ours that have been operating for five years, okay, we know we're going to survive. Um, but it's heartbreaking to see someone that you love. Like, and, and in our industry, we all know people like this um, who are just backs against the wall. And, and, you know, through no fault of their own. And, and just when we started to think that maybe we could open for the September school holidays and get a bit of a bounce back and get a bit of a head of steam up in terms of our organisation, um, getting our staffing in place and making sure we were ready to go for the summer, which for us is just everything. Um, it, it's been brutal, been brutal to see. You brought up before that they're basically looking at the New York model for outdoor dining or maybe borrowing from places overseas. But one thing that strikes me is that Australia's got a lot more, especially Victoria, has a lot more nanny state laws or laws about what can and can't be done outside of a restaurant with eating and drinking and so on that I don't think people quite know how many laws would have to be repealed here in Victoria for some places to even have outdoor dining. Well, that could be a silver lining here, James. I mean, I was thinking about that actually today in anticipation for coming to talk to you guys, that the idea that a lot of um, Law and Traders Association and a couple of other groups have honed in on is how we can get uh, more outdoor seating happening, closing off car parking um, and opening those up to businesses. Now, if that um, 
under normal circumstances, I think that's a really good idea. I think it's something that we should um, focus on creating a really great, vibrant atmosphere in our summer beach towns, the likes of which we see internationally. But but the reality that, from my perspective, is that these guys are focusing on the wrong point. Um, this whole outdoor dining conversation is irrelevant. What what we need to be focusing on is how ridiculous the benchmark for indoor dining that's been set by this government is. Um, if we don't have Melbourne people coming down to Lawn and sitting inside our venues, um, and this is just my rough estimate, but I reckon 50% of restaurants in regional towns that rely on that trade will be out of business by March. Right. So, yeah, uh, really serious stuff. Um, you did, we sort of mentioned just then some of the nanny state laws. Uh, what, it would be a ma- magnificent silver lining because it's hard to run a restaurant in normal circumstances, let alone without a pandemic because there's so many, you know, nanny state rules and there's heaps of um, red tape around labor laws and things like that. Now, Dom, you have been uh, on the media, around the media a little bit over the last few days pushing your cause. You told us before the program that you had a bit of a run-in with Virginia Trioli on the weekend. Talk us through that one. Well, um, Virginia actually has been a long-time supporter of our family restaurants, so I should um, I should go easy here. But um, I was just shocked. Um, I ran into her in Melbourne. I was there on some personal business, and um, we were getting a coffee. She recognised my father, and my father um, made a comment about our autocrat, which she you've never seen someone bite uh more rapidly than that if only i could you know i I, i've never seen fishing quite like it for my father in any case um she she was uh she just couldn't understand and i think for me it put in it put into perspective how out of touch a lot of these guys in the abc are with the common man um the, the 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 small businessman and the battle that's going on here because she couldn't understand what we were upset about she was i i, I just i, I was Honestly, a flabbergasted, I still am, that how vehemently she put the government's point across to me. Um, and when I told her that I thought these um, benchmarks for indoor dining and, and letting Melbourne people out of, out of the city um, and how damaging they were going to be, um, you know, she, she said to me, well, you'll get to vote um, two years down the track and that's your point. And I thought, I sh- that's, where, where are you on this? You should be, I just couldn't believe it. You know? Don't worry, mate. Your business will be done by then, but you'll be able to vote in two years two along years. with 7 million other yeah, people. Yeah, two years of lockdown. We're just, we're nearly there. But yeah. you get to vote, so. Uh, she told me that, um, that, that, you know, we needed to look back on the defunding of the health system. I, I said maybe she was going back a little bit too far. Um, uh, <laughs> Dan Andrews has been either the Premier or the Health Minister for like 10 years, right? If the health system's not ready then unfortunately yeah. that's yet another thing that's at Dan's door. No, but I, I think in general it must be difficult, not not that difficult, but hard for people who have like clearly been a cheerleader for Andrews and the government all the way through this to then suddenly be like, actually, oh no, this is terrible, terrible stuff. So I can see why people would be defensive well, about that. I'll just point out another thing that I, I think you guys should see from, from down here in a little coastal uh, village that, that I just find... Um, to me, it sums up kind of how ludicrous a lot of the rules that we're now living under are. You'll see a couple, presumably a married couple, who live together walking down the beach, a pretty much secluded beach, wearing masks. Um, they couldn't be within 50 metres of, of, you know, a living entity, a fish or a human. And then 
Um, they'll continue to wear masks for the entirety of their walk until they get to the coffee shop. And then the conversation will begin and people will start to realise how difficult it is to discuss something with a mask. So everyone's got their masks off as soon as they're coming into any contact with humans. And then, you know, dutifully putting them back on while they continue to walk down a kind of empty beach. It's just madness. I mean, it's blowing my mind. Um, and... Um, Another point, actually, if you you know, if we're just kind of going for it here, is um, <laughs> I was in um, in the Vic Market on the weekend after I ran into Virginia, and I, honestly, I thought I was in some kind of um, uh, some kind of a film uh, about the apocalypse. There was a thousand riot police there walking down the aisles of the Vic Market while I was trying to buy some fruit, and then there was like five anti-mask activists you've never seen a more heavy-handed response. And to me, it just said everything I needed to see about, where, you know, the direction this government's going in. Um, I think there's a lot of people within our community who are still broadly supportive of Daniel Andrews, but um, the road to hell is paved with good intentions at the moment and I, I just do not like where we're going. So, Dob, just to yeah. clarify, you've been in the media having it out with Virginia Trioli and at the protests... Like are you just you just across every aspect of this. Were you were you one of those people the throwing gump of the lockdown? I, I, I was I was inclined to pull out a um, a punnet of strawberries I'd just purchased <laughs> and, um, and start having it. But but the reality was, Pete, that um, that the the way that the police reacted to that protest versus the way that we reacted to the Black Lives Matter protest earlier in the year was just chalk and cheese. And it shows you that this government is willing to implement a different set of rules to you know, um, protests they, they broadly agree with versus ones that are critical of them. And it, it's, it, I, I just can't see how it's not clearer to people like Virginia Trioli that this needs to be a bit more criticism and um, rather than just cheerleading um, from, from the public broadcaster. But anyway, that's a conversation for another day. Uh, last question for me. So over the weekend, we saw, I, I mean, so Vic, a lot of restaurants and big businesses here in Victoria have been crying out for a support package from the Andrews government as the lockdown increases. And we got the first taste of what it was going to look like with these deal, uh, these uh, funds that were announced over the weekend. Uh, bit of a mixed reaction. Some said this is exactly what we need. Others say it's no substitute for opening up. Have you had a chance to look at them and what do you reckon about them? It's a payroll deferral. I mean, it's honestly, it, it's the analogy I was going to use is probably not appropriate. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make a difference. We are businessmen. We're in the job of hiring people, of, of, of selling a product, and there's no substitute for that for us. Um, I think about the amount of people we would normally employ over the summer, 20 to 30 kids, first jobs or, or, or teaching them how, how to enter the workforce and, um, and the relationship between an employer and an employee. And I worry about the future of these kids um, who are missing out on those first job opportunities now as they enter university. Um, and that's broadly across the hospitality sector that you're seeing that. Um, I don't want a deferral on my payroll. I just want to get on with it, James. So, no, not interested. Um, not in, interested in any more welfare, not interested in any more government subsidies that our kids are going to be paying back. Um, just want a roadmap that's actually feasible for getting ourselves open and operating properly for the summer. Fantastic stuff, Dom. Guys, if you're in the lawn area, if we're ever allowed to go there again, check out Ipsos. Dom, thank, Dom Telmanides, thank you so much for coming on the program. Pleasure, gentlemen. Lovely to speak to you both.
Okay, thank you too, Dominic and Matt Canavan. Uh, let's run through some stories that have made us laugh this week. This has been a long show, but and there's a lot of stories here, but let's let's make this good. Pete, well, Kanye this West. Is, yeah, this is the story you need to know. Kanye West does not qualify to be on the presidential ballot in the battleground, battleground state of Wisconsin because a judge ruled late Friday that he was late in filing his paperwork. James, do you know how late he was? 14 seconds late. So... Uh, what happened? The decision was made by the Brown County Court judge uh, five seconds later. Apparently, they turned up at 5.01 and their, their lawyers, Kanye West lawyers, argued that they turned, that the deadline, if it's five o'clock, <laughs> lasts till 5.01 and they were like five o'clock and 14 seconds. But the judge As said, every no. university student has debated with themselves <laughs> when handing in a university assignment, yeah. when is 12 o'clock? When is 12 o'clock? And I'm old enough to remember, James, when to hand in the university assignment, you actually had to turn up at the university and you'd be belting along the... Southeastern Freeway trying to get there on time, which I'm sure the West team were trying to do. Uh, now, can you imagine being the poor schmuck trying to put together Kanye West's application? There's like, you know, clock's ticking, 28 minutes to go. You know, Mr. West, I need your birth certificate. <laughs> Kanye go, nah, mate, I'm just, I don't need this. Like, I just, I feel sorry for that guy. I just think, uh, Pete, do you feel comfortable being in a position where you're making fun of someone else not handing in an important document on time? I have, am absolutely. It's, it's, if you want to be president of the United States, yeah. then that is part of, part of it. Because uh, his I, I PhD could, platform is coming along swimmingly from the sounds of it. If I was 14 seconds late, James, I would be a lot happier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, glad we got that one in. Um, so what else is there? Um, uh, all right, I want to move on to another one. Sorry, I read this article in The Atlantic. Uh, is this a secret to selling Joe Biden? Which piques my interest because I didn't think there was any secret to selling Joe Biden because there's no way you can. But Democrats have come up with a strategy and it's called the Democratic Avengers, Pete. Um, now, if this isn't this, this idea might have actually been come up with by the Steve Fashimi meme, how do you do fellow kids? Like that meme might have actually come up with this because the idea is... The Democratic Avengers, named after the Marvel movie featuring on the ensemble of superheroes, is the idea is that by voting for Biden, you're not just voting for him, you're voting for all the Democrats, many of them cool and hip, that Biden will have in his orbit. The Democratic Avengers have become one of the most popular uh, messages about Biden, according to surveys, and its idea has made its way into ads. One features action movie music, a comic book font, and various Democrats stylize as cartoon characters. Bernie Sanders, at Reed, supports a $15 minimum wage. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the champion of the Green New Deal. Joe Biden, meanwhile, is building the team that wants to run things. Now, before we get into everything else about this, I love the idea that Joe Biden's most marketable quality in the eyes of the people that put this together is the idea that he doesn't get in the way. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, he's, he's really got his finger on the pulse. Yeah, um, literally the reason you don't vote for Joe Biden is because you're not voting for him, you're voting for the whole Democratic establishment. Like, this is the reason you don't vote for Joe Biden. And don't try and claim you've got all these cool, hip, diverse figures. You had two years to choose one of them to be your presidential candidate, and you chose Joe Biden. And you stole it from Bernie both times. This idea that, hey, Joe might listen to Bernie. Yeah. <laughs> who, who, is they, who are they fooling? Yeah, no, I do not buy. I, I do not think that's going to count much. At the, so, is this a serious article? Like, this is definitely going to. Yeah, this is like the strategy. It's been focus grouped. It's been tested. Joe Biden is a superhero, and his superpower is he doesn't interfere with the agendas of people beneath him. Yeah, I mean, I mean which a is a superpower to people that advise him, and just you know, these swamp creatures that just want him to be in charge, so they can tell him which things to sign. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm in a Rust Belt town. All the jobs have gone out of my my 
my town. Um, I think I'll vote for the guys that resemble the Avengers. Because <laughs> I right. liked that movie in 2012. Yeah. All right. Uh, speaking of Biden, today uh, MMA fighter tweeted out, I want Joe Rogan to host a debate between Trump and Biden, one that preferably goes for four hours. Uh, just the two candidates and their vision of how to move this country forward. Who wants this? Who does this? Who wants this, you might ask, is Donald Trump, who retweeted it saying, I do. This would be the best thing in the world. He, retwe- he would have retweeted that so quickly, he definitely wouldn't have said to my, his staffers, is this a good idea? He would have just said, oh, give me I don't mic. think Trump's ever said that. <laughs> yeah, he <laughs> might have never, never said asked that. that question. <laughs> he might have. He, he advised asked for advice once. Anyway, his phone would have been shaking. Like, oh, yes, I want to... I say yes to this bloody thing before the guy takes the tweet down but obviously that would be an absolute gift for Trump and would be amazing to watch and will never in a million years happen uh, unfortunately unfortunately but is there any I thought I was hoping you'd go nah maybe it will happen is there any hope they're not even letting him debate on CNN why would they let him debate with Joe Rogan who's like openly saying he's senile and would try and make him do drugs yeah, 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 yeah. That's the other thing about this. Like half an hour in, Rogan, we go like, are we going to you know, start smoking weed now or we'll start drinking? Yeah, let's do some DMT. I want to hear Trump do ad reads for the Rogan podcast. <laughs> just oh. get distracted halfway through, just start talking about the jobs that would come in. But like, yeah. there's so many things. That, there's so many reasons this should be a thing that happens, which is exactly why it's never going to. Yeah. Uh, all right, we've got two more stories here. Oscars and uh, Michigan University. So, Pete, which one do you want to talk about? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll bring in the Oscars because I know this is a big issue for you because you're a big movie guy. Uh, it's a bigger issue for you, to be honest. You seem pretty fired up about it. Uh, yeah, yep. I am fired up about it. Um, I'll get into it. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which I didn't realise was the full name of the thing that gives out the Oscars, uh, on Tuesday laid out what The Guardian called sweeping eligibility reforms and what I call race quotas uh, for gender, sexual orientation, race, ethnicity and disability. So, James, what do you think? I think it's just saying the quiet part out loud. I mean, isn't every Oscar nominee or winner basically along these lines? So the specifics were that, you know, a certain certain percentage of the characters have to be of a different race than white and Mm. they have to have major speaking roles and all this other stuff. And the cast. I think it's just like, sorry? And the cast as well. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. But like... um, Oh, sorry, not the cast, the crew. I meant to say. Oh, the crew, right. I think this is just saying the quiet part loud. And it's just where the Oscars are going anyway, but now they've written it down in form. Well, see, I didn't realise that because I don't keep as close an eye on the Oscars as you, but to, but I think it's a big step to go from just sort of fake having that, like sort of low-key having that rule to actually having the rules. And this is one of the reasons why you're kind of inclined to vote for Trump is because even though he's not perfect, the country is less likely to have stuff like this if he's there, I reckon. And as like, long, I was just going to say, as long as this ensures that La La Land never wins again, and the the whole debacle that went into La La Land winning is prevented from happening. There's the movie gag that we needed. Uh, yeah, so that's my take, James. That's my serious take on that. Well, in the interest of like saying the quiet bit loud, I think they should add just one more stipulation into this, which is like, you mm. know, all these uh, quotas that need to be fit, and then yep. one line at the end, it also needs to be a movie that absolutely no one will see. Okay. <laughs> it's just like, if we're, if we're going to do this, let's get all the cards on the table. Yeah. No, oh, exactly. Every, a movie that everyone's going to pretend they've seen and enjoyed, 
Yeah. But it got like 15 minutes in on Netflix one night and then flicked it back over to some Will Ferrell movie. I feel that you've got an example in mind here, James, that you want to get... I actually don't. Just... But like, I'm, I'm just saying, if we're, in the interest of saying the quiet part out loud, like Moonlight, maybe. I, I can't think of too many people that genuinely enjoyed Moonlight. But all right, last story we want to talk about. Oh. University of Michigan. Um, I mean, we talk about, you know, we've had stories in the past of extremely progressive movements mistakenly bringing back segregation thinking it's a progressive <laughs> idea it is a favorite this is topic the latest one this is the latest one so the university of michigan uh the dearborn center for social justice launched a virtual discussion group for non-people of color white people to gather and discuss their experience as students in campus and as, as, as uh, and as non-people of color in the world and it was basically the idea it was marketed as a non-poc cafe which in another way of thinking about it is saying that it's a whites only cafe if you think about it, that's a bit racist. <laughs> it's just a little bit segregation-y. Imagine that moment because they go, oh, hang on, we've just reintroduced, uh, we've just reintroduced segregation. I love the university's like, statement that they put out because obviously they took down the tweet after like a day or whatever. They said, um, what did they say? They said, we apologize for the lack of clarity around this statement. It's like, are you oh, sure? Oh, no, we was- figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> it was clear. It's not that it's not clear. Anyway, I like that. And the justification for not letting black people come to their um, meeting was that they don't want to harm... When they're talking about how racist they are, they don't want to harm black people by getting them to explain it to them. So it's like you've got to do better and listen, but also not talk to anyone of a different race. And that's going to make Do you reckon these great. people ever find themselves looking at photos of South Africa in the 1980s and thinking, what a progressive paradise before then just going, oh, wait, hang on. <laughs> Whites only at this meeting. Um, yeah. So, at least, you know, you might have had a day, bad day at work this week. At least you didn't reintroduce segregation. That's good. That's a good point. All right. That is it for the show this week. Thank you to Matt Canavan and to Dominic Talmanidis. Um, uh, all right. Uh, if you like the show, make sure you're leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, and that'd be awesome. We're on every basic, we're on basically every single podcast platform and on YouTube and on Facebook. So, if you do have friends and family that you like talking about politics with that don't listen to the show already, tell them about us, get mm. them involved. We've also got Looking Forward, um, Five Favorite Books, The Heretic, Viral Banter, and Australia's Future, all the other podcasts we've got here at the always growing podcast empire that is the institute of public affairs so go check them all out and a bit of housekeeping next week shows out on wednesday not tuesday we're out on wednesday so we'll see you guys then thanks guys thanks guys